The Mona Lisa is the most famous painting in the world. It's housed in the Louvre in Paris, and it was produced by the hands of the master himself, Leonardo da Vinci. Mona Lisa is renowned for its beauty and its grace, its mystery and its serenity. According to most art experts, they would say the Mona Lisa is the most beautiful portrait ever put to canvas. But this morning, I would submit to you that they're wrong. Now you would say, well, what could be better than the Mona Lisa by da Vinci? Is it a Rembrandt, a Monet, a Goya, a Pollock, maybe a Picasso? Well, it's neither of those. It's a Paul. So the most captivating portrait ever painted, we find in our passage this morning, and it is a portrait of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it hangs not in the Louvre, not in the Metropolitan, but it hangs on the walls of the gallery known as Philippians chapter 2. And Paul's portrait of Christ in Philippians 2, 5 to 11 is the most stunning and staggering work ever painted by man. So it transcends the natural and invades the supernatural. It ascends the staircase of heaven, and this portrait exhibits itself in a grandeur unparalleled in human art. It is, as I've titled this message, a portrait of perfection. And in our text, the Apostle Paul, he wields his pen like a paintbrush. He transforms prose into picture. Every word is a master stroke. Every phrase a delicate flourish. Every sentence a new texture of smoky hue and soft shading. And today, in this text, you have the exquisite privilege to watch as the Apostle Paul paints a master portrait. As it were, he bids you come and enter his private studio. He pulls back the curtain. He reveals his canvas. He takes up his brush and he bids you sit and watch as he paints the most stunning portrait of Christ ever seen. In our passage today, in this portrait that Paul will paint, we will discover two dimensions to the portrait of Christ. Two dimensions that will serve as the model and the means by which the church of Christ is to walk in unity and fellowship. The means by which the church may walk in unity and Christian fellowship. So here's our outline this morning. Very, very simple. We will first look at the staggering depths of his humiliation in verses 5 to 8. And then we'll turn our attention to the stunning heights of his exaltation in verses 9 to 11. So again, if you're taking notes, there's the depth of his humiliation and the heights of his exaltation. So let's begin our study of this portrait of Christ by examining the depths of his humiliation. Because that's the first dimension in this portrait that reveals how the church, how this church is meant to walk in biblical unity. But before we dive in, I should give you a little background on the book of Philippians. Paul started the church, he planted it himself around AD 51. That story is recorded in Acts chapter 16. It began with the conversion of Lydia. She was a Gentile from a place called Thyatira, modern-day Turkey. And then the next convert was a Philippian jailer and his family. Well, 10 years later, Paul writes this letter from his first imprisonment in Rome. And in chapter 1, he updates them on his circumstances. He wants them to be encouraged because even though he's actually imprisoned for Christ, the gospel is nevertheless advancing and rather boldly. Then, starting in verse 27, 
He calls the church to walk in unity, to live a lifestyle that would create unity among the brethren. He says, walk worthy of the gospel. And that theme of unity, which he begins in verse 27, carries through into chapter 2. In fact, in verses 1 to 4, he has some very poignant and pointed instructions on how to create that unity. He says, do you want to have a lifestyle that would characterize your church and people would see that you are unified one with another? Okay, well, verse 3, consider others as more important than yourselves. Do you want to have a lifestyle of unity? Well, verse 4, he says, look out for the interests of others and not simply your own interests. And if you will do those two things, Paul says, then you will produce that sweet fruit of biblical unity, which, by the way, the Lord Jesus desires for his church. And then in our passage in verses 5 through 11, Paul shifts now from the exhortation to the illustration. He moves from the exhortation to the illustration, and Paul is going to point to Christ as the supreme embodiment of humility and selflessness. He will point your eyes to Jesus as the highest and best example of what it looks like to be humble and selfless. Those two virtues which are vital to any church walking in unity with one another. And if we church, as you as a church here in New York City, are to walk in unity with one another, then what you need preeminently is to gaze upon this portrait of Jesus Christ such that as you look at him, you will be transformed into his likeness. That's what we find in Philippians 2, 5 through 11. So with that background in mind, let me read verses 5 to 8 again. Philippians 2, 5 to 8, Paul begins and says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Verse 8, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Well, that's our look at the depths of the humiliation of Christ. And Paul starts in verse 5, He says, I want you to imitate your Lord. He says, have this mind among yourselves. In other words, he's saying, I want you to think this way. I want you to adopt a certain perspective for your life. And the reason why is because, as he said in verses 3 and 4, if you are going to do nothing from selfish ambition or, or conceit, If you are in humility to count one another as more important than yourselves, if you were to look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others, then you can't do that if you don't have the right mind, the right mindset, the right perspective. Well, Paul, which mind are we to have? Well, you're to have the mind that Christ had. And then in verse 6, he's going to sketch that out. He's going to paint with his brush what mind that Jesus Christ possessed. And as an artist, starting in verse 6, the Apostle Paul really begins to flourish. His paintbrush will flit over this canvas like a butterfly, and he's going to add color and depth and dimension to this image of Jesus Christ. And you could summarize, actually, verses 6 and 7. You could summarize it with the phrase, the divinity. The divinity. And I mean Christ's divinity. That Christ is, in fact, deity. Because, you see, if you're going to understand that Jesus Christ, well, rather, if you're going to understand the depth of his humiliation, you must understand that Jesus is God. And I'll show you that in verse 6. Look down at verse 6. And it says, Though he was in the form of God, 
And again, that's how the ESV phrases it. And the, the, the verbal idea of he was, in the original language, that stresses a continuous existence. And it stresses the reality of that thing's existence. So you could actually translate it, Jesus really existed in the form of God. That's why Jesus would say of himself in John 8, 58, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Because Jesus was, is, and eternally exists as God. And Jesus really existed, Paul says, in the form of God. And I want you to look at that word form. So no matter what your translation, how it renders it, the, in the original language, that word form speaks of the essence of something, like what its essential nature is. Not what it looks like, not its appearance, but its essence. And in the essence of something doesn't change. So what Paul is telling you is, Jesus was in time past, is, and will be in time future, truly divine in all its fullness. That's why Colossians 2.9 says, in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. So Jesus was, is, and forever will be truly God. And that makes the next part of the verse very, very significant because look, even though Jesus was God, he did not count equality with God a thing thing to be grasped. He didn't count it a thing to be grasped. Well, what didn't he count? Something to be held on to. Well, equality. And that word equality was used to speak of something that was exactly alike in size, shape, quantity, or quality with another thing. These seats in this room, they are equal. They're the same color, the same shape, the same size, the same dimensions. Every seat in here on these pew rows is exactly the same. Well, that's what Paul is communicating about Jesus and God the Father. He says Jesus is equal to God in power, in essence, in status. He's not a subordinate, lesser, lower God. No, he is God in all his fullness. And yet, it is that fullness of divinity that Jesus did not consider it a thing to be grasped. That phrase, a thing to be grasped, one word in the original language. It appears only once in the whole New Testament, and that's in our passage right now. But if you broaden it and you look through all of Greek literature, you're only going to find that particular word a few times. It's rather rare. And so originally what that word meant back in ancient Greek, it meant something that was seized or taken by robbery. You seize something by stealing it. But over time, the meaning came to be anything that was clutched or embraced or prized. Anything that you really hold on to because it's valuable. So let me tell you what Paul is saying here. Even though Jesus was equal to God in every way, equal in his riches and splendor and glory and honor and magnificence, even though that is all true of Jesus Christ, yet he refused to hold on to all those, you could say, prerogatives or privileges of deity. He refused to hold on to them for his own advantage, but rather laid them aside. You ought to be asking, why would he do that? Why would God, a very God, be willing to lay aside all of the privileges of deity that he rightly was entitled to? Well, look at verse 7. Paul will answer with his paintbrush. And in verse 7, his brush erupts with this explosion of strokes. And he splashes on the canvas this texture that brings to the life, almost raises the image of Jesus off the page. And he highlights the staggering humiliation of Jesus Christ in verse 7. Look at it with me. 
but emptied himself, he's speaking of Jesus, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. That's what theologians would call the incarnation, right? That's what John 1.14 describes as, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. As one Puritan said, that's where heaven and earth kiss, where mystery and marvel meet in a divine embrace. That's what we find in verse 7. The word became flesh when the Lord Jesus emptied himself. By the way, that word himself is emphatic. It's meant to receive special emphasis because God, through the pen of Paul, wants you to know that the supreme humiliation of Jesus Christ was not forced upon himself as if he was subjected to it unwillingly. No, you need to know that the humiliation of Jesus Christ was voluntary. It was willing in every sense of the word. So his emptying was a willful act of Jesus Christ. And there are really two questions we need to answer if we're going to understand verse 7. First, of what did Jesus empty himself? Of what did he empty himself? And then second, how did he empty himself? How did he do it? Well, we'll answer the first question of what did Jesus empty himself? And you might say, well, well, did he empty himself of his divinity? When Jesus became a man, did he lay aside his divine knowledge or his divine power? The word is om, om, uh, omnipotence. Did he lay aside any of his deity in order to become a man? And many people teach that, but that's wrong. The Bible doesn't teach that because, see, Jesus couldn't become less than God by shedding any of his godness because if Jesus was at any point less than fully God, he would cease to be God. And remember, verse 6 says Jesus existed in the form of God. And that word form, if you recall, speaks of something's unchanging essence. So Jesus can't change his essence. He has always and will ever be fully God in every way. So whatever Paul is saying, you can count on this. He's not teaching you that when Jesus became a man, he became less than God. Let me tell you what Jesus did empty himself of. At least four things that Jesus emptied himself of. Number one, he emptied himself of his riches. He emptied himself of his riches. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 8, 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Jesus has always been the Lord of heaven. As Lord of heaven and earth, he owns everything. He makes Elon Musk look like a beggar. Jesus has infinite riches. And yet, when he became a man, did you know he had to borrow a manger for his birth? He had to borrow a boat to preach in. He had to borrow a donkey to ride on. Had to borrow a house to sleep in. Had to borrow an upper room to eat in. Had to borrow a tomb to be buried in. Second, Jesus emptied himself of his beauty. He emptied himself of his beauty. Imagine as the Lord Jesus, in all of his godness, adorned in heaven with infinite perfect splendor and majesty, so much so that the, the seraphim, the angelic creatures who surround him, He's so glorious, they cannot look upon him with their eyes, but they must shield their eyes and their face with their wings. That is the Lord Jesus. And yet, Isaiah 53, 2 says this. Upon the earth, I quote, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was utterly 
unremarkable as a man in appearance. Third, Jesus emptied himself of his glory. He emptied himself of his glory. That's why on the night of his, before his crucifixion rather, Jesus cried out in John 17, 5, and now father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Jesus had infinite glory in heaven. He deserved perfect praise and worship. And yet, do you know what he regularly received as a man upon the earth? Mockery, scorn, scoffing, rejection. Isaiah 53, 3 records of Jesus, of the suffering servant, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. So you can rightly say Jesus emptied himself of his beauty. And four, fourth, Jesus emptied himself of his favored status with the Father. He emptied himself of his favorite, of his favored status with the Father. And perhaps this was the most painful. Remember what Jesus cries out on the cross, Matthew 27, 46. He's hanging there on the cross and in his anguished voice, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in that moment, there was the Son of God in an incomprehensible way abandoned by his Father with whom he had forever enjoyed perfect intimacy. And yet in that moment, he was the sin bearer. And in that moment, he was receiving the infinite wrath and fury of a holy God. So yes, you can definitely rightly say that on the cross, as Jesus, as a man, he emptied himself of his favored status. Not forever, but as a man, he emptied himself of his forever or of his favored status with the Father. So in summary, what does it mean that Jesus emptied himself? Well, it means although he possessed all the rights and privileges of deity, yet he voluntarily chose not to express them. You could say he possessed them, but he didn't express them. He possessed them, but didn't express them. They were, in a sense, veiled by his humanity. Let me give you an illustration to see if I can't add a little clarity to what that means. Mark Twain's novel, The Prince and the Pauper, helps illustrate this point. So in the novel, The Prince and the Pauper, it's about Prince Edward, the son of King Henry VIII. And he temporarily changes places with a boy named Tom. Tom's a poor sort of street orphan in London. So what they do is they swap clothes. Tom, the, or, the, the street rat, he goes to the palace. Prince Edward goes to Tom's house. And it's there in Tom's house that Prince Edward has to deal with Tom's drunken, abusive father. It's there in Tom's house that Prince Edward is exposed to all of the miseries and hardships of life as a penniless boy. But catch this. During all of the time that Prince Edward spent in Tom's household, the young prince surrendered none of his true identity. He was still the Prince of Wales at all points, and he could have exercised his power at any moment had he so chosen. But his royalty, while possessed the entire time, he chose not to express as long as he submitted himself to life as a beggar. As Tom. That is a shadow of what the Lord Jesus Christ did in his incarnation. He surrendered the right to express what he had infinitely, eternally possessed. 
Now let's look back at verse 7, because Paul's paintbrush will answer the second question, how did he empty himself? We know of what he emptied himself, but now we need to explore how did he do it? And he says in verse 7, Paul explains, by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Being born in the likeness of men. So the Lord Jesus emptied himself, but almost paradoxically, not through subtraction, but through addition. He emptied himself not through subtraction, but through addition, which is to say he added humanity to pre-existing deity. He added humanity to his deity. So he didn't become less than he was. When Jesus became a man, he became more than he was. That's why Paul says he took the form of a bondservant. By the way, that word form Exact same word that Paul uses in verse 6. So remember, that word form has to do with something's essence. Not the outside, which changes, but the inside, the essence, which is unchangeable. So Paul says, Jesus took the form of a servant, which means he truly was in every way a servant. It wasn't an appearance. It wasn't an act. It was who he was. And by the way, that word servant is really the word for slave. And imagine this, when the Lord Jesus Christ became a man, he didn't come as a conquering king. He didn't come as a noble attended by a thousand servants with a majestic army. No, he came as a slave. He laid aside his royal garments and he took upon himself the garb, the clothing of a slave. And none of us were born in the first century. So let me tell you what it was like to be a slave at that time. One commentator writes, a slave has the lowest position. He is powerless. He has no rights. He has no glory. He has no honor, only shame. Another commentator elaborates. He says, a slave is, I quote, a person without advantage, with no rights or privileges of his own, for the express purpose of placing himself completely at the service of all, end quote. That's your Savior. The one who says of himself in Luke twenty two twenty seven, but I am among you as one who serves. The one who says of himself in Mark 10, 45, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. The one who in the upper room, the night before his crucifixion, there with his disciples, what did he do? But he took off his robe, he took upon himself the towel, and he washed the feet of the disciples. By the way, that was a task that none of them wanted to do because none of them did it. That was what a menial, lowly, no account, no nothing slave did. And yet the Lord of glory did that. And that is the model church for us. That's the humility, the selflessness with which we are to live day by day by day. And I would imagine there are many of you in this room who you exhibit that selfless mindset that Jesus Christ did. That you actually practically live a life of humility where you care for others and serve them. I bet many of you thrive in that way. But if I'm going to be honest with you, I personally find that to be hard. So there's a part of me, my spirit, I want to serve, right? I want to honor Christ has nothing to do with me being a pastor. It has everything to do with me being a Christian. I want to serve and imitate the Lord Jesus in that way. But the problem is when that moment of service comes, when it's time to die to myself and help someone else at my own expense of time or money or whatever, then this hideous, insidious beast called the flesh 
rises its head like a dragon in my heart and says, no, that's beneath you. Let somebody else serve. You don't have to do that. You're too good for that. Anyhow, your priorities are more important. You don't need to let them lay them aside on account of that person or that person. But so what my natural inclination in my flesh is, is the precise opposite of how the Lord Jesus Christ lived. You see, in my heart, I actually want the throne. I want the the privileges of royalty. I want to hold the scepter. I want to wear the crown. But if you look at Jesus, that's not what he did. He got off his throne. He laid aside the scepter. He removed his royal garments. But that's not it. He stooped so low that he became a frail and fragile man. He became human and robed in flesh. And he lived as a slave of all, right? He didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And I think that's the lesson here that Paul would want us to walk away with. As you look at this picture of Christ, that's what we're meant to imitate. That's what we're meant to emulate. We're meant to be servants like that who would wrap ourselves almost as with clothing, the garment of humility, And you would look to the man or the woman on your left and right and say, their needs are more important than my own. And I will happily lay down my life to meet their needs. Because, oh, by the way, that is exactly what the Lord Jesus Christ did. And that's where Paul will take us in just a minute in this passage. Not only was Jesus Christ a servant, You could rightly think of it as a slave. But he was also born in the likeness of men. So go back to the end of verse 7. He was born in the likeness of men. And that word likeness, that's not the word form that we saw earlier. It's quite different. That speaks of something It's similar, but it's not exact. Similar, but not the exact same thing. And Paul's point is, Jesus looked like every other man, But he wasn't exactly like every other man because Jesus wasn't sinful. Jesus wasn't sinful. He had no sin nature. But he was similar to man. He was truly man except on that point because the Lord Jesus Christ had no sin nature, which all of us do have. And then verse 8. Look at verse 8. Being found in human form. Well, that kind of sounds like what Paul just said. Well, but this time there's a little shade of nuance here. He says, being found in human form, and human form this time actually does refer to the appearance. That refers to the outside, what things look like. Not what they are internally, essentially, but what they look like on the outside. Paul's point is this. Jesus was a man. And he looked like a man. When he was a baby, he looked like a human baby. When he was an adolescent, he looked like a human adolescent. When he was a young man, he looked just like every other young man. But the difference was, Jesus wasn't only a man, right? Jesus was the God-man. And I love it how the church father Augustine describes it. In speaking of Jesus becoming man, here's what he says. Man's maker was made man, that he, ruler of the stars, might nurse at his mother's breast, that the bread might hunger, the fountain thirst, the light sleep, the way be tired on the journey, that the truth might be accused of false witness, the teacher be beaten with whips, the foundation be suspended upon wood, that strength might grow weak, that the healer might be wounded, that life may die. That is the Lord Jesus Christ. And in the rest of verse 8, 
almost beyond imagination because the humility we've seen of Christ thus far is stunning, but Paul takes us even deeper into the true depth of Paul of Christ's humility. Look at verse 8. Starting in the middle, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. If you're taking notes, you want a header for your notes, call this the death. Call this the death. Because here are the lowest depths of Christ's humiliation. And in fact, it's where his beauty shines the brightest in the darkness of death. I want you to notice that Jesus, according to verse 8, humbled himself. Right? Pilate didn't humble Jesus. Herod didn't humble Jesus. The Jews, they didn't humble Jesus. The Romans, they didn't humble Jesus. Do you want to know who humbled Jesus? Yeah, Jesus humbled Jesus. He humbled himself. And he did it by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And let those words, death on a cross, just linger in your mind for a moment. In the ancient world, there was no more shameful way to die than to die upon a cross as a criminal. It was said to die on a cross was to die a thousand deaths. The Roman statesman Cicero, he called cross death the most cruel and hideous form of punishment. In fact, he says it's so vile, so shameful, so degrading that far be the very name of a cross, not only from the body, but even from the thought, the eyes, the ears of a Roman citizen. In other words, he's saying to die on a cross is so unconscionable that if you're a Roman citizen, don't ever let that notion enter into your thoughts. It's that vile and shameful. But you see, if you were a Jew, it was even worse. Not only was it the most extreme form of public humiliation, but moreover, if you died on a cross as a Jew, you were considered cursed by God. You are considered cursed by God. That's why Paul writes in Galatians 3.13, and he's quoting from Deuteronomy, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And yet, to what depth did the Lord Jesus Christ humble himself so that he might save sinners? Death on a cross. And consider your Savior, the one who it was who humbled himself to that lowest, most shameful point. He's the one whose birth was celebrated by heavenly herald and angelic choir. He's the one who created all things. He's the one who upholds the universe. He's the one around whom the seraphim of heaven, they swarm and they constantly cry, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. He's the one who is the alpha and omega. He's the one who is the bright and morning star. He's the one who is the very lamp and light of heaven. And he's the one who submitted himself to a death on a cross. Isn't your savior lovely? Isn't his humility staggering? Who of you would do such a thing? Not I. Praise be to God that he sent Jesus, the only one who would and could do such a thing. He hung on a cross where the sins of man were draped across his shoulders and the wrath of God engulfed him like a tidal wave. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. And by the way, that very same spirit of humility 
ought to characterize me and you. That's how the church is meant to live. That's Paul's point. If you want to live a life worthy of the gospel, if you want to walk in Christian unity, then you serve others and you do it in a spirit of the most profound humility. And do you know how to cultivate that kind of humility? Do you know the first step down the road of real and lasting humility? That first step is you look at the Lord Jesus Christ and the scriptures and you gaze at him and you cherish his humility in a passage like this and you think about it and you meditate on it and you praise him for it and you keep thinking over and over about his humility until it becomes so precious and so beautiful to you that in your daily life you are compelled to live it out. You look at him in his beauty of his humiliation. And as you look, the Holy Spirit, bit by bit, begins to transform you into his likeness. That is the staggering depth of the humiliation of Jesus Christ. This first dimension of our portrait of perfection. We come now to the second dimension. The second dimension of Christ's perfection, and we'll cover it more quickly, even though it is by no means less rich in its portrayal of the beauty of Jesus Christ. And in verses 9 to 11, we will watch as Paul the artist blends with subtle skill the staggering humiliation of Jesus Christ with the stunning exaltation of Jesus Christ. And it's that juxtaposition of humiliation with exaltation that makes this portrait infinitely sublime and sweet. We'll look at verse 9. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. The name that is above every name. You want a title for your notes, a little header here? Call it the bestowing. Call it the bestowing. And what Paul is saying is because of Jesus' humiliation, because of his self-renunciation, God highly exalted Christ. Incidentally, that shouldn't be a surprise to you because humility, according to Scripture, always precedes honor. Jesus says of himself, or rather, he says in Matthew 23, 12, he says, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. But the interesting thing is, when we as men, as creatures, as humans, when we humble ourselves, there is the promise of exaltation. But Jesus wasn't simply exalted. No, Paul says he was highly exalted. And that that uh, verb in the original language, which is translated highly exalted, it appears only this time in the whole New Testament. And what it means is it has the idea of being elevated to the supreme rank, to the absolute highest level. And you could, you could really translate this, you could think about it as God has super exalted Jesus. And that super exaltation is perhaps captured nowhere as clearly as in Ephesians 1. Listen to Ephesians 1, 20 and 21. He, God, he raised him, Jesus, from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Isn't that a fitting exaltation for one so humble and lowly as Jesus Christ? But see, that's not where the exaltation ends. Because the rest of Philippians 2.9 says, he, God bestowed on him the name that is above every name. And God didn't just give Jesus a name. One of many. No, no, he gave him the name, definite article, the name. 
And you ought to be asking yourself, well, what is the name? Because if you're reading the same verses I'm reading, he doesn't say, or it doesn't seem superb, supremely obvious at least. So what is the name? Well, the interpretive key to unlock that riddle lies at the end of the verse. Look at the end of verse 9. God bestows on him the name that is above every name. If you want to know what that phrase means, you got to go back to the Old Testament, Isaiah 42, 8. Listen to what God says about himself. I am the Lord. And your Bible may have that in all caps because that's the word Yahweh. I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. And if you were to ask, what is the name that's greater than every other name? Then Isaiah 42, 8 would point you to the name Lord, capital L-O-R-D, which was the covenant name of God, which was the name of God, his personal name, Yahweh in Hebrew. That, my friends, is the name above every name. That is the name that trumps every other name. And that is the name that God the Father bestows upon his precious son, Jesus. And in the New Testament, the Apostle Peter affirms that in his first sermon at Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. Listen to this. This is Peter speaking. This Jesus God raised up, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So the name that the Father bestowed upon the worthy Son is the name Lord, a name that speaks of infinite majesty, absolute sovereignty, total supremacy. That is the name the Father rightly bestows upon the Son. And it's because Jesus deserves that title that verse 10 says, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and that every tongue confess that Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Quickly, you could summarize Verse 10, verse 11, with the the header, the blessing. Here is the blessing that God gives to the Son. Global worship. God gives the Son global worship. That's what it means by every knee will bow, every tongue confess. What Paul is telling you is that one day, every rational being and the entire expanse of the universe living or dead, angel or demon, principality or power, every single one of them will publicly declare that Jesus Christ is Lord. And I want you to notice it says every tongue. Every tongue will do this. Even those who hate Jesus Christ will declare his lordship, albeit through clenched teeth and clutched fists, but they will will acknowledge his lordship. Hitler will confess it. Stalin will confess it. Pilate will confess it. Judas will confess it. And you too will confess it. The question is, will you confess it as the friend of God or as the foe of God? And before we end, I want to pause for a moment and just speak to any of you who are not in Christ, if you know that you're not truly a Christian, that you maybe you're religious, maybe you've grown up your whole life going to church services and being acquainted with the Bible, and, and, and you even go to Bible studies perhaps, and you've got some Bible verses memorized. But yet in your heart, you know that you've never surrendered to the Lord Jesus Christ. You've never bent the knee to Him because you like the throne. And if that is you, 
If you are not genuinely a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, then my plea to you today is you must surrender to his lordship. You will one day in the future, but don't wait for that day. If you wait for that day, it will be too late. If you wait for that final day to surrender to the Lord, then you will do so, but it will be forced upon you. And then he will cast you in hell. And you will never escape because there is no purgatory. And so if today you know that you are religious, but you are not converted, then I would plead with you. Today is the day to repent and place your faith in Jesus Christ. Today is the day that you must acknowledge his lordship. Humble yourself before the great king of everything. Fall on your face and say, Father, forgive me, transform me. I want to serve Jesus Christ. Because that day of his exaltation is coming where all mankind will acknowledge his lordship. And I plead with you, don't wait for that day because it will be too late. Come today and exalt Jesus Christ as Lord. And the reason why you must exalt Jesus as Lord is actually contained at the end of verse 11. Because when you exalt Jesus Christ as Lord, not only do you give him glory, the glory which he deserves, but you give God almighty glory. And that is what Paul is concerned with in verse 11. That's what the Lord Jesus Christ is concerned with. Look at verse 11. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. To what? To the glory of God the Father. The reason Paul points you in this passage to Jesus Christ is because it gives glory to God. Everything Jesus did in his whole life was about bringing glory to God. And as a church, we are meant to bring glory to the Father. And although none of us will do that perfectly, because none of us possesses a perfect spirit of humility or of selflessness, Yet, if you will look at the Lord Jesus Christ, if you will meditate on his beauty, his humiliation and his exaltation in a passage like this, as you reflect and ponder and consider him, then bit by bit, the spirit will transform you too. And you will image and imitate the Lord Jesus Christ. You won't be a perfect reflection, but you will be a reflection. And you will give glory and honor to the Father. That's what the Apostle Paul desired for the Philippian church. I know that's what your pastor desires for you. Let's pray. Father, would you grant that we imitate the Lord Jesus Christ, whose humility the world has never before seen and will never again see such a perfect display of humility and selflessness. And it is for good reason that you thus highly super exalted him. And Lord, may the name of Jesus Christ be super exalted at this church and in the lives of these believers. May they walk in unity and harmony so that Christ is magnified so that the light of Jesus blazes in a dark city. Do this work by the power of the indwelling spirit through the eternal words contained in your Bible. We ask in the name of Jesus, amen.